Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Be rolling. All right, hey, welcome to the podcast. Glad tidings we bring for you and, and your king. king. We have uh, not the three wise men here, but we have uh, three wise we guys. Got the four. The three to wise the podcast. guys. This is Father Mike. Father Mike, this is Father John and Father Michael O'Loughlin. Father Nathan. We got the band back together. So Catholic stuff you should know. Good to be with you. We are recording in um, just outside of Vail, Colorado, on the annual Companions Villa. Villa is a uh, phrase we took from uh, the Jesuits, which is uh, an excuse to go hang out together. And uh, thus far, the most important events of the uh, villa have been an excessive uh, and pretty violent uh, nerf war last night. Some yes. of you saw that on the Facebook uh, feed. And and rubber band guns. Rubber band. Some of us some, some people six shooters. Some I got people did shot. Not get I guns. got shot in the ear and the tooth. <laughs> <laughs> did it stick? The no. sticky nerf things. It like real. It was with one of those rubber band guns. It like shot me right in the tooth. <laughs> I'm going to claim that that was me, even though it wasn't. But that sounds awesome. That's a lesson learned. Keep your mouth shut. Yeah. yeah the right. uh, the the. What we realized last night was um, we're just big kids, all 11 of us in this house, having a Nerf gun fight, except Father Brian Larkin, who's the one adult who was like, I'm out of here. These guys are lame. And um, So then we went into the garage and all shot him. Yep. It was a, it was a sudden attack. So, yeah, so Nerf guns, and then uh, the evening ended with um, more violence in uh, Settlers of Catan. Oh. There was, uh, yeah, probably confessions needed this Blood morning. Blood was spilled. Blood was shed. But uh, everybody got up this morning, and uh, we got through it. So, yeah, it's good to be together. It's good. Father Mike and I are really happy to be back and especially to be recording with uh, these two guys. We also pray and do other, well, eat, eat good meals. Eat good meals. Else. That's kind of like everything. Well, yeah, the point of, the Pray, point of Villa, we do a summer conference every year where it's kind of more intellectually driven, and we do a silent retreat. But this event is nothing scheduled except for Holy Hour and Mass every day, kind of the staples. And then nice long meals, Gobel. What would you throw in those eggs this morning? That was quite the— uh, Father Brian made uh, pork short ribs, and uh, we cut that up, and a uh, little cream cheese. yeah. It was tasty. That was very tasty. So, yeah. But here we are. And uh, one of the things that we have been particularly grateful for on this villa is the um, sh- boxes of gifts that Father Nathan oh, yeah. schlepped up here. Unbelievable amount of uh, bourbon. Yeah. And five bottles. Five bottles of bourbon that we received, um, which we not have not all drank in, but right. uh, we started Sour into. Sour Patch Kids, a special thanks from Father Mike. That's right. And uh, anything Snow else? Did you get any of this stuff? with non pareil. I brought two bottles of bourbon myself, actually, too. So, yeah. So, you guys know us well. Bourbon's the best gift. We do have, it's <laughs> I, not just although, the companions. Hey, look, it's in not just 2017, the... Father Mike is no longer drinking bourbon, he's drinking tequila. Oh, is, is that your... Uh, That's what he wants Is now. that your resolution? I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying something. He's not saying something. My sister finally... I don't know what happened, our upbringing. This is how different kids can be. She has hated bourbon, but she finally had a conversion on this last hut trip that we, we were coming out of the oh, yeah. mountains. She's another tequila and, uh, drinker. Yeah, she's one of these tequila drinkers. But it was kind of a forced upon bourbon. We were up in the uh, at this hut in the backcountry, and you can't really carry beer up there, up to the uh, into the wilderness, so... Bourbon was basically the exclusive drink, so my sister, very grateful that uh, we now count her among us as mm-hmm. faithful bourbon drinkers, right? 
Yes. Yes. We have, just so people know, we have not only the companions up here, but we're going to have five guests. Five guests. So we're not just, it's not just us in a cabin for, you know, five days. But uh, there's plenty of people. Plenty of people. Many of whom I talk to these guys. I listen to Father Steve Akers, and I'm like, you should have a podcast. What what are we talking about? You know what I mean? Some of these yeah. guys are excellent. So they might appear at some point in the uh, in the future. But now he's quietly uh, reading by the fire. Quiet on the set. Quiet on the set, everybody. We're in this uh, kind of little den thing, but there's no doors on the den. So we're kind of watching people got, come and go as we... You uh, got pheasants on the wall. And there's actually a loon on Where? the shelf. Did you see the loon? Get out of Whoa, here. It's meant yeah. to be... I, I mean, the whole they'll... theme is sort of like... Uh, oh, that's a pheasant, isn't it? No, it's Western, not. Western, Western. But then you got this loon just hanging out right there. Oh, I, I mean, it's providential. Here we go. Father Nathan unbelievable. showing us the very loon. And some Quit touching it like that. It's so creepy. Um, <laughs> you see, that was kind. He's an see, animal There's monkey, monkey bookends, too. Stealing fruit out of you uh, Gibraltarites. When you were oh, yeah, him. yeah. The monkey's from Gibraltar. You know what? I'm not a fan of the monkeys in Gibraltar. And if you go to Gibraltar, I'm going to say stay away from this. I know. I just want to reiterate that. You know, they're yeah. creepy. They sound so charming and everything. Yeah. Father Mike was chummy, but no thanks. What kind were they? Hmm? What kind of monkeys? Spider monkeys. Don't ask me that. Yeah, I don't know. McKay? Oh, I really? got corrected for that by somebody. They like, <laughs> did you? Were they like howler monkeys? <laughs> and I just got it wrong again. You can't get away with anything anymore, so... Oh. I know, and uh, okay. So your New Year's resolution is to drink more oh, tequila no, and less. Know. I don't do the resolution. Father Mike. Yeah, what do you mean you don't do the? Well, actually, last you year your know? resolution you was to dance my, more. My New Year's resolution is to stretch out my IT band. Okay. <laughs> my uh, no, it's just like my I got a tight leg, and now when I stretch, it sends shooting pains. Right. My friend uh, Steve Saya, an aspiring uh, physical therapist. Taught me how to stretch it out. Well, I'll join you today because I have a freaking Charlie horse that's lasted 36 okay, hours thanks, thanks to Father Nathan. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. How many times did you punch me before I punched you once back? Uh, five. And how many times? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but did you deserve it? What? Well, so here's the backstory. Because he lost a cribbage is on what Monday. Uh, so our first day, sport. we bring up this new guy, Deacon Daniel Usterman, makes mm-hmm. his promise as a candidate. Beautiful. Joins our crazy yeah, association. Deacon. We haven't scared him away yet. What's the first thing he does? He gets pistol whipped by you in cribbage and mocked for not playing fast enough. That's why you got thrown down on the ground and punched out by mm-hmm. both of us. So. Mm-hmm. John, John would have been on my side, but he decided to take Daniel as his partner. Now, for the last six years, eight years, you and I have been partners in cribbage, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to be with him. And I said, great, I'll be with Mike. Yeah. Woodshed. And, and it was. I got taken out back. Father Mike was just play, pegging off me like it was nobody's business. Oh, yeah. So that's behind us. <laughs> Father Mike is... Yeah, why don't you go play ping pong with Larkin? And I'll play on your team. So, speaking of seven years, I know we're we're approaching That's the why I seventh said that. seventh anniversary. It was twenty seventeen. It's like welcome to the future. So, I think on the sixth of January is the anniversary of the first podcast. Is that right? The Pillar Epiphany. Saints, the Stylites. So it's been seven years. That first I feel one. Like we just said this. Whoa, Has we, it been a year ago. Gone? It was a year. Year, years yeah. Seven years. Isn't that crazy? And that's actually uh, the reason why Deacon Daniel Usterman doesn't listen to the podcast is because you 
called one of the stylites by the wrong name. Incorrect. There's name, there's multiple oh, yeah, stylites. We've that. talked this. Right. We've but talked his, this his the whole beef was like he listened to that that episode and he's like the stylite's name is Daniel. Yeah, he's, he's so proud bias. of he's so proud of that. Everybody knows Simeon. Everybody knows yeah, Simeon the stylite. Thank Multiple you. We have, we have our Eastern guy here. Oh, forgot to turn the stopwatch on. I've been a little I, bit. I, I, I've got my I own. Think garage bed does minutes. Oh yeah. I've got my own stylite. Her name is Callie Costalecki. <laughs> she uh, she works at Heather's. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you talking? She does my mullet. she's a stylite. Yeah. I get it. The mullet is just yeah. I like. Can't it. even get, get into it? that topic. I so do. I get it now. But well. <laughs> Here's a toast. Happy uh, seventh anniversary to the podcast. Cheers. Great to be together. Yay, cheers. You know what's funny about that? The length we just exceeded the length of the first podcast right now. Isn't that crazy? Oh yeah, the eight minutes. We mark? just went over eight minutes. Well, Are we doing this? Okay, hold on. Well, you know. Okay, we have the VIP grows, whiskey that's coming out. What are we drinking? And wisdom. Hudson. 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 So thank, yeah. Thank Happy. you to those who gave gifts that provided for the Hudson bourbon that we're drinking. Yes. Very nice. I bourbon. think Father Nathan's going to make some particular thanks at the That's end right, of the, the podcast. End. So, okay. okay, gentlemen. So, to the topic, right? Oh, winter classic yesterday. That was great. Blues win. Right. Mike Goble. Love you. Okay. So, These I told I told fans, Olo about this topic. Um, it's going to need some explaining. Um, Father Mike likes to make fun of um, uh, most things that I'm into, and one of them is the bands. And one of the, the patterns know. we're seeing, with if you want to start a band, it has to be something and something, right? So it's like head and Florence, the heart, yeah. Penny and Sparrow, Florence and the Machine. Iron and, and wine. Iron and wine. Head and heart. Isakoff does not do that, but yeah, that's kind of the... Thing so hmm. I've, I'm finding that I'm starting to do that with pot, podcast topics. Yeah. Everything has to have an and, yeah. right? And this is part of academia, right? You have to have like the title of your paper and then the colon and then whatever, or say things like towards a spiritual theology or this kind of you know hmm. put the words hermeneutics in there and you know. Um, but this topic is an and, uh, and the title that I would like to propose for our conversation today is monomania. And the cosmic and? And, and the cosmic liturgy. All right. Okay. So we'll see how this goes. This is a very uh, rough, undeveloped set of ideas. So I'm hoping that you guys can help me kind of flesh this out. Does that sound good? Yeah. Why not? Okay. Here we go. Mania sounds to me initially like Legomania. Like this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Of, that kind of stuff. It sounds like that. Mo- you know, like the the. The wildness that comes in the wake of getting mono, that kissing disease. Oh my right. monomania is like when you start God. going crazy. Right. I had uh, I had mono, but it wasn't from kissing in and it did lead to mania. But here's where I got the fr- the phrase monomania. We'll start with that and then we'll move to the phrase cosmic liturgy. How does that sound? Okay. I read Moby Dick this fall. Yes. Which is a very long book. I learned more than I ever thought I would about whales, and so did Father Mike, because every day we would kind of talk yeah, about it was these very things. Interesting. I'm reading all the books that Father Mike read when he was like 11 years old. Right now, I'm trying to actually read some literature. But as you know from my reading of literature in the past, it becomes very autobiographical, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> oh. Let's, autobiographic, yes. Let's stay, let's stick with autobiographic. What is this? So this is when you read, I interpret <laughs> literature in an existential way. Yes. Right. So were you Moby Dick or were you, uh, yeah, Ahab. yeah, Ahab? Well, are you the whale? What's the or name you... of the sidekick? Um, Starbuck. Starbuck, and uh, now listen. Now, 
it's not totally egocentric. I know we think that sanguines are, and we most of us are, but it's usually just start. It starts to speak into my experiences. Sure, yeah. So when I was reading Moby Dick, I was struck by the monomaniacal character of Captain Ahab. If you don't know the story, there's this um, sea captain who is just obsessed with killing Moby Dick, the mm-hmm. greatest of in the largest whale and the most violent whale in the world. And, and the backstory is that on the previous trip, he took his leg, Moby Dick, uh, and that's Ahab lost his leg. And he's just famous com- peg leg, peg leg, completely fixated and yeah. has this whole thing, this whole compromises, this whole project. They see it sail all across the world looking for Moby Dick. And uh, the whole point of it is they're driven by his, his, um, his rage. And, and there's this line that I read, uh, on page 804, if you're looking for it. So he says, um, Ahab is forever Ahab man. This whole axe, and he's referring to the hunting of Moby Dick, is immutably decreed. Twas released by thee and me a billion years before this open rolled. Fool, I am the fate's lieutenant. I act under orders. Hmm. So this monomaniacal thing with him is interpreted so intensely that it's actually like, this is his fate, right? Everything becomes, he becomes completely fixated on this one idea. Yes. What is monomania? Monomania. the fixation? So the, on one thing. Okay. Uh. So it's the, um, all of reality, this is going to be the important thing we're going to flesh out here, becomes reduced to this one thing, right? So it's the, it's the narrowing of, of reality to, and the fixation on one thing, monomaniacal thing. So anyways, Reading this book, thinking about uh, monomania, and of course, I'm not going to think about myself as Ahab, right? I'm going to think about other people as Ahab, nobody in this room, but I had, I had my Ahab in mind. I was like, that guy is so monomaniacal, right? Mm. And then I found myself fixating on <laughs> this guy and interpreting him, and this is baggage from the past years, and just getting obsessive and like, like just thinking and thinking and thinking on it, and I was like... I may have, right? I'm, I'm monomaniacal. And the more that I reflected on it over the last few months, I realized that this happens to me all the time, mm. right? Not all of us have the temperament of a golden retriever, i.e. Olo. And uh, some of us are just obsessive, anxious, prone to resentment, control, and drama, right? We're chows. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about myself. Well, yeah, we're chows. Angry and ugly, right? No offense if there's... There's going to be somebody's going to listen who has a chow. Hungry. We had one of our brother priests was thinking about getting a dog and we were going to surprise him with a chow from the dumb friends league. Chows are ugly and mean. And, uh, if you like chows, that's cool. We don't like chows, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're making a lot of enemies right now. No, that's fine. Chow lovers. Chow lovers. Yeah. Chow, chow lovers are going to get monomaniacal on father John and our hatred of him. So anyways, I became very convicted about how my day to day life gets ruled by, um, becoming obsessive and fixated on one thing. Yeah. Usually it's triggering some kind of baggage in my life, but um, I spend the majority of my days not thinking about Jesus and really not thinking about good things. I think about, sometimes think about good things, and then other times I just get fixated and you get kind of locked into this, into this kind of circular pattern, and we become like Ahab. And I think that his character is um, very fitting and very telling for something of the human experience, which is that sin, by its nature, limits us, right? It reduces reality. And and so the act of monomania is twofold. It's a rejection of of reality. And it's kind of an, an, an idealization. So you just get fixated on an idea, right? So it wasn't even reality. 
that Ahab was obsessed about. It was just this idea. And that's the idea what was, was what was driving him. And what I find a lot of times when I get into relationships with people, and all of you have been through this as we've had our, our go-arounds in the uh, past years, um, I realized that a lot of reconciling relationships is about I got to get out of this monomaniacal pattern mm. because I get spun up, spun up, spun up, spun up. And then I start to make judgments. This person's like this. He's always been like this. And you know what? I forgot about that thing five years ago that he did. And, and you start to draw these conclusions and uh, you're losing touch with reality, not just with, but also with the person. So you got to kind of get concrete. And that's one of the hard things about um, reconciling relationships is you got to kind of, kind of bring it back down. So monomania, I find in my own life to be a very destructive force in um, compromising relationships and the with the loss of spiritual peace mm-hmm. as well. So, and you would say that you're kind of like your go-to when it comes to obs- obsessive thinking would be about relationships, or that's just an example. Like I, I'm thinking more more recently that I do that with my work, where it's like the first thought I think of when I wake up in the morning, in spite of like not wanting to. I wish I was praying. I wish I was doing something else. Um, but uh, I, that is what I think of. It's what I think of when I'm trying to fall asleep. And then throughout the day, it's just like kind of uh, master of my my mind and my thoughts. Um, but it can be, yeah, it can be a number of different things. You know, another application that I see for this is I, I call it the uh, the nursing home mentality. And it's like this is when, when you go to a nursing home and after, you know, t- almost 12 years of being a priest, it's like you go in a nursing home and all the people that are in there want to talk about is how much noise their neighbor makes or the type of music there is or what kind of food they're eating. And it's like when you're in a nursing home, you don't get out much, right? You don't see the wider world. Like you you, you soak up the media, whatever the media is that's coming through your TV, and you, you deal with the personalities, only those who are also in the nursing home with you. And so their entire relationship with me is based upon just venting and gossip so a lot of people in nursing homes they, you know their their world is so small i almost just want to tell them like let let me take you out like let see the real world again they get obsessed over such small things comparatively to the rest of the world and this is the same thing like with younger people you see on social media like how many followers i have how many likes i get it th- their world is so small and they almost become maniacal over just this one thing whether it's just my social media or just my neighbors that are in the nursing home or just and you almost just want to say just we need to get out more like when we get so obsessed like you almost tell ahab like get off the ocean for a while there's people i follow on facebook it's like just get off facebook for a month like your whole world will completely open up but we become so so obsessed with these very surface things only the things that are part of our our immediate experience of of just the immediate community we have around us and you know i think part of community then the point i won't go too much into this but part of the point of community then is to kind of open us up to the greater reality so we don't become so obsessed with with singular things whether it's our our social media profile or you know just the experience of the community we have in the nursing home or or whatever it might be you know broaden our understanding broaden by by um, dispersing our experience, but I think I know where you're going with this. Also, we're dispersing it also by becoming more unified. Right, Eric Goble, good. Well, I, um, the only thing I was thinking of was, isn't that where idiot comes from? Like being being an idiot is just like you're only concerned with your own self. Right. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So then, idiocy is like sin is idiocy in the sense that you're only obsessing over all of these things that are related to you, which is the original sin, 
you know, like uh, Eve and Adam thinking in the garden more about themselves and their own position and place than they are about what, what they've already been made as or uh, what the, how they're related to God. So then what's the opposite of idiocy? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's the etymology? That's Greek, right? Idios? Well, I don't know what... Dialogos. Yeah, it might be yeah, something like uh, generosity or communion or... I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of potential. I, I don't know like a specific kind of opposite term. Yeah. Well, I, idea, idea is one's own, right? Yeah. Idios. Yeah. Um, so then, would be, what would I'm what would like be koinonia or something like the, yeah. the sharing yeah. of goods, the common, the, the common, yeah, even ideas, right? And I don't want to go too much into last week. We published on this relation and dialectic thing, so I don't want to. But they're all kind of these hmm. these topics are actually kind of tied together, and they've been kind of what I've been thinking about the last few months. Um, for me, a, a lot of times I I get monomaniacal on relationships, um, people, but I think Father Mike made a good point to say that um, can happen with anything, really. I mean, we're writing huge papers. You're working on a dissertation right now, and um, you know, so we we come down to lunch every day at the casa, and these are good men, good priests, but everybody has just spent the last four or five hours on their project in their world. So, lunch conversations can be a little wanting at times because guys are trying to kind of come down from that world, you know. So your project could be a totally a mono, a, a, an event of monomania. Uh, I thought of another idea, like another historical example. We've been reading Virgil, and in the in the introduction, they talk about Cato the Elder, who used to end every speech to the Roman Senate with delendum es Carthaginum, right? Carthage must be destroyed. So no matter what topic he was talking about. Yeah, he on, didn't have to be talking about war. Yeah, it was just, just a, random, like, random topics. His favorite food. Right, and, and then he would just say, the Lendum Esse Carthagium. It's just like, that's kind of, you're a bit obsessive around uh, this one topic of we have to destroy Carthage. And so that kind of becomes, no offense to our friends at Cato Capital, Tim Pinnock, and they didn't think that was very funny when I said we could do some rebranding, oh, you know. I have recently watched, I think on the flight, I watched that movie with uh, Bobby Fischer. You know, where uh-huh. he gets real paranoid. Oh, yeah, it's like a biography. But it shows about his dealing with paranoia. Now, that's a specific kind of ailment. But it's similar in the way that everything in life becomes reduced to this fear that people are spying on him, watching him. And um, and he divorced from reality. So there was something real about the fact that he's... he's becoming uh stepping more into the limelight and then that's bringing more attention and he's becoming politically involved in all these things but then it just uh explodes in his mind into an obsession about everyone is trying to get at him everything is a plot and a conspiracy and i think that's where like in in relationships where i've seen i can my mind can just start spinning and and start presuming a lot of things that lose reality um I think presumption can kind of be the, like the the biggest um, flag for me, or or like so something I need to avoid when uh, my mind starts to obsess about um, how I'm interacting with people or they're interacting with me. I gotta just stop and say and, and like ask someone, you know, are you unhappy with me? Are you right. frustrated? Are you, um, you know, whatever? Ask myself, where am I at? Instead of like presuming that I know what's going on with everybody else. Yeah, I think Because my mind starts 
fearing, right. you know, things are after me or right. you know, something's wrong or whatever. And I think this, this monomania tendency in humanity is, I think it's a, an effective sin, but also, um, like Ola was saying earlier, like technology kind of heightens this, you know, and not to just rip on technology again, you know, another podcast on that, but technology is very good, but it, it gives us the capacity to move so quickly. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is I feel like technology, not to digress here, but um, technology, it's like you get the form without the content. So, you know, I feel like I know somebody um, where I can present these things, but but the reality is form and content together. You know, you can't just have the, the gestalt. This is very Balthazar, and I don't think we can necessarily go down this topic, but all that to say technology is changing the way that humanity relates and is it's really affecting it deeply and um and so we have to kind of live with these monsters as balthazar used to say and learn to live amongst the so that they don't destroy us but also um to use it for good so number one down and and the cosmic liturgy okay so where did this word come from from our old friend hans uns von balthazar Right, Maximus the Confessor. So this is a book I'm holding called uh, Cosmic Liturgy of the Universe According to Maximus the Confessor. This is by uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar. A very fine read, pretty technical, not one you'd probably give your younger sister for Christmas. But um, those of us who are studying theology, we get really excited about this stuff. Maximus is a guy that most of us don't really know about in the West. So you might be, you know, you think about the great theological minds of the West. You think of Augustine, you think of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, these guys. But Maximus, this was an important work that Balthasar did in the 40s because he really sees Maximus as very, very important. Though He was an Eastern monk, and we got our Eastern guy here, so he's going to check my facts here. But he was one of the foundational, what Balthasar will call a foundational stone of Western, the Western spirit. So the world that we've inherited is in many ways indebted to this man, whom we don't um, really know too much about. So I want to kind of pull from his life one idea and try and reflect back on monomania in light of that. All right? So I'll give a couple. Yeah. Can we just give a date for the historians out there? It's like 6th century, late 6th century? So he was born in 580 um, in Constantinople and died in 662 in Georgia. Right? Okay. And uh, his story was, I'll let Olo hand this over here in a second, but um, his story is um, he was in politics early on in Constantinople. He was involved with the, because you got to remember the the whole empire shifts. So Constantinople in the seventh eighth century, this is the this is where the political power is. The whole empire is shifted here, so he's right in the middle of kind of political intrigue, and the movement towards integralism, so the union of the church and the state, um, in a certain time in a very interesting period in history. He leaves the political world, becomes a monk, um, and becomes a very influential um, writer and thinker, primarily around the controversy of. Anybody remember? Monothelitism. Monothelitism. Uh, sure. So in, in the early church, as and, and should be the case still today, the, the hierarchs, the bishops of the church were kind of those who um, were properly obsessed with canon law. They were, they were the ones who provided structure to the church. The, the hierarchy of the church and the order of the church was provided by the bishops. Um, 
the monks, on the other hand, were more like the prophets. They were kind of the the crazy ones who were free thinkers and always um, being kind of a thorn in the flesh of the bishops of the hierarchs. They were the ones who, um, you know, the hierarchs would kind of want to shoo them away because the the things they were saying were always stretching the boundaries on the Monks. order and the structure that the hierarchs were able to provide for the church. So uh, Maximus was one of these. And if you look, especially at the later ecumenical councils, these first seven ecumenical councils with the entire church gathered together um, to uh dogmatized to to formalize a truth that had become controversial so a question had come up about something specific and so these these councils were called after a lot of debate usually and these were kind of the finalization um using the ordinary magisterium to define these truths um that were controversial and being debated so um the sixth ecumenical council defined um, monothelitism as a heresy. So monothelitism means one will. And so the first kind of millennium of the church, as Father John mentioned earlier, um, was, was a big debate about the the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and and um, the three persons and one God, and all these things, since they're not explicitly stated in Scripture. Um, these councils were the working of the Holy Spirit through the bishops um, to define these things. So um, the fact that that many her- heretics were saying that that Jesus Christ only had one will, two natures was defined earlier in the first council, but only had one will. In other words, um, his his divine nature, his godness, and his human nature, his humanness, um, only shared one intention, one will, one decision making faculty. Um, Mac, uh, Maximus the Confessor was a um, very much argued for the fact that Jesus Christ, since he had two natures, also had two wills. So monothelitism is a heresy, whereas a diathelitism, um, I'm pronouncing that wrong, I know, is is um, dual wills. He both had a human and a divine will. Well, son, you got three college, college credits in theology for yeah, that. Yeah, that was like an That was impressive. So, yeah, so, it, so in uh, 451, the Council, the council of uh, Chalcedon, as Father Michael just mentioned, was working out what is, who is Jesus? How does this work, this kind of God-man thing? And they're talking about the two natures. And a misinterpretation of those two natures is that there's one will. But here's the other thing. There was some political interest in monothelitism. So mm-hmm. these things are not just ideas. They're historically focused, and we could maybe uh, attribute a little bit of monomania in the uh, Constantinopolian court uh, of the 6th, 7th, 8th century, who basically wanted to centralize power, uh, the spiritual power, uh, under the temporal power of the emperor. And that was kind of the movement at the time. And in the West, we've had the same thing happen over the centuries. This is a constant temptation uh, within the church. But that became a particular point. So you're looking for a, a mono, you want one will within these two realities, right? It's like a theological um, it's a theolo- it's a theological expression that was that kind of aided a political institution. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Are you with me on this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of all there. So when Maximus refutes these ideas, like he had to suffer, and his tongue got chopped off, and he lost his right hand. Right, so that's just kind of a mild uh, <laughs> suffering. But his ideas weren't received until the third the third Council of Constantinople. So he died without any sense of. Am I, you know, is he heretic? Is he right? I mean, right. He didn't have this confidence. He died in exile. Um, and, um, and it was only then, like I said, Constantinople three, that, um, his ideas were upheld and that he was venerated as a saint. And really one of these definitive characters with like Athanasius and these other guys who moments in history where one saint 
kind of carries the church through a period of chaos. And Maximus is one of these guys, and I, I think Balthazar rightly points to him as a father of Western spirituality because he lived in the tension between the East and the West. So he's living in a period when things are starting to split. Uh, only three centuries after him, you're going to have the definitive Great Schism. But he lived in that... Um, he stood between the East and the West and was able to kind of balance that in a very profound way. So he's pretty awesome. The point of his thing and tying this back into monomania is what we'll just call cosmic sacramentality, right? And I'm, I'm very particularly interested in what you guys have to say about this, but especially Olo, because we don't talk about faith in, in a cosmic way, right? The, even the word cosmic seems kind of like new agey or um, pagan, you know, but the, the liturgy is a cosmic reality. The sacraments are a cosmic reality because of the nature of Christ and because of the universal um, way by which he reconciled all of creation to the Father. So there's this kind of cosmic dimension to theology, which is at this, really at the heart of Maximus's work. And he draws, Maximus draws this from our very good friend Dionysius the Areopagite. Remember Dionysius? Um, who is taking they're wrestling with these ideas in greek thought so this kind of cosmic thing all these ideas this kind of greek stuff they're kind of working it out as we interpret um god's revelation historically from the jews but it's kind of soaking in these things and the idea of the cosmos is one of these things that develop but tying it into the sacramentality and the liturgy is going to be a particular um accent and focus of maximus um in the way that he kind of approaches theology so i'll pause there any thoughts on any of this stuff? You well, honor, Goble? Just, just a scripture reference. We should have uh, Father Matt book here because he wrote his thesis on this. Yes. Uh, but in Romans, you have this reference to all creation is groaning as it awaits the revelation of the sons of God. It's like he, he, everything has been expecting and is uh, anticipating the coming of Christ and the effect that the uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then his body in the world has on all of creation. Although Paul doesn't say a whole lot about that. You have this very poetic line that is very provocative and uh, interesting, you know? Yeah, uh, Paul, even in the scriptures, um, I'll have to look it up. I didn't prepare well, but um, it talks about, in a, in a sense, the new creation that the church brings about, especially in the liturgy. I mean, that, that's how we interpret it now as Christians who experience the liturgy. But the liturgy is, of course... Liturgy means the work, the work of the people. But when when we in the East call it the divine liturgy, we're we're adding to that that it's the work of God. So there's there's certainly a the church is meant to redeem the world. The physical world around us is, according to Maximus, um, is just symbols. The world around us is is the symbols of the divine reality. And you know it's ironic. I like how you tie this in. I'm guessing Balthazar does too. I did, although I haven't read him. Um, ties it into the fact that all the physical world is only symbols of the invisible. So when, when God created the world, he created it with words. And in Genesis, we hear, you know, he said, let there be light and, and the word created the world. And so even everything around us that is good is an expression of God himself. So there is a certain unity to everything in the world. Everything in the world is just a revelation of God and it all ties back to him, but it's a surface and that, that we can taint through our sin. As you said earlier, Father John, you know, that there's a, a way that we can taint the 
expression and the word. Um, we reveal ourselves to each other through our words. When I when I'm going to um, share with you who I am, I share by speaking. And this is how God created the world. The Word, who is Jesus Christ, which is the perfect revelation of God. And so, since Jesus Christ became physical, He, in a sense, redeemed all of the physical around us. So we can everything physical we see, if we see properly, we see it as an expression of God. Everything around us, everything. So um, the the East uses the word noose. This is the eye of the soul or the eye of the heart. And so, um, if we have noetic capabilities, that means that we see beyond just the physical. So you might say atheists when they look at the world, they say everything that exists i can perceive with my physical five senses you know that's what an atheist would have to say whereas if if you're a christian you're working out of this noetic capability the eye of the soul within the noose that is given to every single human being is is an awareness of the fact that everything we see with our five senses is merely symbolic, but it's symbolic of something much deeper that is God himself. So we look at the world, those with, with that have honed their noetic capabilities, those that have removed the passions, the East says, those that have, have, in a sense, freed themselves from sin, they now, that purity of heart allows them to see clearly to the deeper reality that the world is all an expression of God. So what the liturgy does then is the liturgy is kind of the, the place where the two meet. The liturgy, since it's so physical, Physical. You know, we use bread, we use wine, we use our voices, we bow, all these physical things we do in the liturgy. But that, in a sense, the liturgy is the connecting point, the access point between the invisible reality of, of what's happening in heaven and of God himself. And yet we're using, as Father John said, we're using sacramentals, we're using physical things that manifest the invisible. Um, so Maximus, the confessor, was very much one who wanted to express and to build up and say, look, the more liturgy we do, the more sacraments we do, the more that we let the church reign. Again, there was this political climate where where many were saying that you know the the church and the state were one, but 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 the the state is merely a symbol. The state is merely a symbol, uh, and the church is the access point. The church is, and especially in the liturgy, when we when we pray the mass or pray the liturgy or any type of liturgy, matins, vespers, etc., we are at that moment expressing and living in the the connecting point between the real what is real namely god himself and the word of god the expression of god the physical that is happening in our liturgy but it's important that we understand the church is the savior of the world the church is the savior of the physical because the church of course is the body of christ who is perfectly god perfect man etc well said when i was in philosophy i wrote a Really lousy thesis. I thought it was awesome at the time. I just reread it and I was like, wow. Um, on the loss of noetic knowledge in the West. Mm. So what happened to Noose? What happened to this? Because think about it. Think about just present day Catholic person. What is the experience of the liturgy? I go get my fortune cookie on Sunday. Otherwise, the priest will yell at me. And somehow this is going to make me go to heaven. Whoa. We're a long ways away from what was just described by Olo, right? Like people don't have a sense of a, co- a cosmic sense when they experience the liturgy, when they go to Mass on Sundays. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is, though, is that there's this tension between the personal and the cosmic. So Father Nathan is not just a piece of the cosmos. He's also very particularly um, created in the image of God. So there's this kind of elevation of man, right, that happens, particular humanity within the cosmos, but... <clears throat> But that's different than the fact that there really is a cosmic 
thing um, uh, that the entirety of, of the universe is drawn up into this Christ event and that we're experiencing that in the liturgy. So I think that begins with Augustine. And not to say Augustine's bad, Augustine's amazing, one of the greatest writers in the history of the church. But what was Augustine's concern? It was about the relationship of nature and grace and my salvation, right? This gets fast forward 1,500 years. These Augustinian monks like Luther take this thing to the extreme, and the anthropologically centered modern world becomes obsessed about me. So I guess the point of this is that the crazy irony is that the modern Catholic liturgical experience is monomaniacal in the sense of my own personal salvation. We refer to the sacramental life of the church often in reference to my own yeah. soul. That's, mon- that's, that's, that's We're becoming fixated on that. And when it gets really hard, that becomes scrupulosity, and you get into these kind of Jansenistic things, and there can be real spiritual unhealth here. So you contrast that with a world that's now rejecting Christianity and saying, we just want to go off into nature, man, right? I just want to go be in the huts, and that's where I have my spiritual experience. I was on a 14er one time, and this guy said, yeah, my church is the first church of the Rockies. <laughs> Very funny. Okay. What's he saying, though? I have not experienced the cosmic dimension of Christianity, and that's why I find it wanting, something like that, right? And so I think part of the project, theologically, because theology does inform culture, is to bring the East back into the conversation. It can't just be pure Augustine. Augustine, Chalcedon, and Maximus, according to Balthazar, are the foundation of Western thought. Maximus and is kind of tied in with Dionysius in that um, so we need to really focus again on getting people back to a broader understanding of sacramentality. When we're hiking and skiing and the, looking at these trees, the, we have to heighten the noetic sense. But then somehow we've got to tie that back into the liturgy. And that's why I think the huts, the, these masses in the huts are a real special experience for us because they're experiencing this kind of cosmic thing, creation, but then it ties back in, and they see that the central part of the day is when the sun is setting, we kind of gather around together, and um, we speak about these deeper realities that kind of illuminate everything. So we take people on these hut trips. It's one of many things that we're trying to do to try and kind of recultivate that, that noetic dimension of faith, but also reinterpret the liturgy in its cosmic reality. Just a couple of, couple of pointers, I guess, uh, by... Try, trying to be helpful with people who are saying, okay, so like, how do I move from my uh, monomaniacal approach to religion or Christianity? Uh, one, drop an, uh, drop an obsession with pragmatism. Um, if you are only going to make sacrifices, uh, like going to church and being religious, saying prayers, with specific practical goals in mind, like... I, what I really want is to get a raise. Or what I really want is um, for this person I'm concerned with, uh, concerned about to get healthy, um, who's sick, you know. I mean, these are, these are not bad things in themselves, but they, uh, you gotta, you gotta have a, a, uh, a very like open approach to, um, to religion that lets God do what God wants and that's open to listening to what someone else has uh, willed for our lives. Okay, so this kind of practical obsession. What am I going to get out of this? Mm. You hear this at church when people come in and say, well, Father, that was nice. You talked about a lot of things in your speech, 
Um, but how am I going to, you know, how am I going to be a better person when I leave? You know, it might be helpful if sometimes we give pointers to people how to be better people, but that's not the bottom line every time. It's not just about a New Year's resolution. Mm -hmm. This church isn't just about getting you fit and happy or something like that. Um, There's so much more to it. So um, check the pragmatism. Um, I had another one, but I forget. Yeah, Yeah, I I think something relating to that, Father Mike, um, there is a, we have this, idea that when we go to church on Sunday, it is our one, we go to Divine Liturgy or Mass, it is our one experience of God for the week. And so I want to be able to hear, I want to be here, be able to hear the prayers completely clearly. I want to be able to understand every word that is said, you know, therefore a, a foreign priest that, that, you know, I don't understand his homilies, that becomes very distracting to me when it's completely pragmatic, if it's just completely practical and I, I need to soak everything in. And, and one thing that I think we've lost is that sense of, of the within the church, there's both private and public prayer. So I need to be praying alone. I need the silence. I need that alone time. So if I am, if I'm going to church on Sunday, having had no private prayer at all, then I'm going to desire that private prayer experience in the mass or in the divine liturgy. That's not the place for it. The, the, the places, the divine liturgy or the mass is where the entire cosmos comes together and we experience the community of public prayer in that context. Um, so, in other words, if I have prayed and done a holy hour, for example, if I've done a holy hour every day, and I, in my holy hour, I've been able to control my environment. It smells like I want it to smell. It sounds like I want it to sound. And everything is completely controlled. Then I can deal with an hour, hour and a half on Sunday of just complete pandemonium, of trying to control my children, you know, trying to deal with other people's children, trying to deal with the smelly homeless person in the pew next to me or the person with horrible fashion sense or a bad homily from the priest or a horrible choir. I mean, all these things we need to experience in the mass, I mean, those things we need to work on being helpful, but that, that we, we can have an hour and a half. If we're praying for seven hours a week, very intentionally, one of those seven hours can be spent with a community that is not controlled by me. Like I'm not, I, I'm experiencing the entire cosmos in this liturgy and it's not helpful to my personal, very intellectual, pragmatic spirituality, but it doesn't need to be. Like I can, I can be awkward and confused and frustrated during the mass of the liturgy because I've been spent six hours that week or six days that week being, being very in control. So the public liturgy is not a place where, where I, am, I am being individualistic. It's not a place where I'm saying, I want to hear everything and I need to be, it needs to all be controlled and according to my personality. The exact opposite is true. That's where I go to work and receive God in the context of the entire God, the community with the people that are poor and the people that are rich and the people that have this fashion sense or that, that smell this way or that, and they have well-behaved kids and, and you know they don't have well-behaved kids. That's the place for that craziness because that's what the cosmos is. But I, I'm going to be frustrated with that if I don't get my private prayer time in. I need the private prayer in order to have the public prayer. I need the public prayer in order to have the private prayer. Those both have to be experienced together. But all of that prayer, in a sense, is also an expression of, of the, again, this noetic sense. Noetic, again, to define it again, it is the eye of the soul. It means the, the eye, the perception, the theoria is the Greek word, the, the, the contemplation, the perception of the deeper God reality within the fit that I perceive in the physical around me. Well, I, w- I would just add on to that, that you probably have a better and more likely and authentic chance of encountering God in liturgical prayer 
than you do in your own personal prayer. Although in your personal prayer, it may feel like I have everything that I want. Everything's silent. Everything smells right. Or I'm looking at the right icon or whatever. And it just, that to me, like smacks of the same kind of subjectivism and monomania of, uh, it's really about my experience instead of like where we're speaking with the voice of Christ to the Father to reconcile all things to God in the blood of his cross, which is a messy and crazy reality. Um, I think we need those times of personal prayer. But, you know, if you go to a monastery and you see these guys together, it can be like, oh, my gosh, these guys are so holy. They're so wonderful. Wouldn't it be great? And then, you know, Father Gronsky would say, you know, like there was a tradition of guys would ring the bell and then the next guy would hand the rope to the next guy who would keep ringing the bell until the last monk was there. And then the other guy said to the one of the other monks after they left, that guy hates my guts. Did you see the way that he handed that rope to me? That's reality, you know? Right. And so, like, to me, like, some of this stuff is uh, uh, allowing ourselves to not be the center. Like, yeah. only in Christ can we actually say, I am. You know, he's the only one that says, I am the good shepherd. I am the, the vine. You are the branches. Like, focus on yourself as a branch, not as Christ as the vine, because then there can be a hesitation or like a temptation to be, I am the vine, and these other people are the branches. No, you're not. You know? Yeah, well said. Sorry to cut us off. We got to wrap this thing up. Otherwise, we're going to go over the deadly 60 minute mark. Um, a final a final thought, though. Jerry Springer, final thought. <laughs> final. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. Nathan, quit beating your wife. Remember, no. um, a fight is about to break. A up. final thought, yeah. The, uh, this just ties into what you guys were saying, but especially Nathan at the end. My experience of my monomania is an, a way of escaping from reality, right? I want out. Because I don't want to deal with this suffering. Reality is too hard. It's too difficult. So I want out. So uh, the challenge of allowing the liturgy to more deeply insert us into reality, it's a difficult one. It's a challenging one. And especially in the days we live in. Um, I think Maximus the Confessor is an example of a man who was just like deeply, deeply um, integrated into reality. And I just want to conclude with a, a little honoring of him from this great quote from von Balthasar. So here's what he says about Maximus the Confessor. We search with our lanterns for models to imitate, but we do not like to look for them in the distant past. Here is one who seems extraordinarily contemporary, a spiritual world traveler who continued to work quietly while the waves of the Persian armies and the still more threatening waves of Islam drove him ever farther from home, and while ecclesiastical and political, and political integralism captured him, put him on trial, attempted to seduce him, condemned him, and banished him until, at the southern end of what was one day to be holy Russia, he died a martyr. Hmm. This is a man whose life, through the liturgy, was deeply configured to reality in a very cosmic way, and who knew Christ and saw the grandeur of um, the cosmic redemption which Christ has undergone, uh, that the Trinity has, has accomplished. And so we thank God for this holy saint, and for the freedom that comes with the grace to get out of our own monomania.
quick thing about um, that too is that they cut off his tongue so that he couldn't preach the truth and his right hand so he couldn't write the truth. I thought that was very applicable. That's why they cut off his tongue in his right hand so he couldn't preach or write, of course, what was so important for him to do. So it was a beautiful sacrifice and he, he died shortly after that because of the suffering. All right. Uh, shout outs from Olo. Um, Julie Perillo is uh, Perillo Perillo. Sorry, I've never heard your last name, Julie. Um, is the cousin of now Sister Natalia at Christ the Bridegroom Monastery, an avid listener and she is obsessed with Father Nathan Goble and hopes to meet him one day. Um, um, so shout out <laughs> to Julie. Um, also, my little nephew, Ryan O'Loughlin, who I said I'd give him a shout out. And he says, Father Michael, I don't want to be famous, um, but too late, buddy. <laughs> my, my little nephew, uh, who's, who's very humble. So Ryan O'Loughlin, God bless you. Love you. And also a Trevor Lantain, Lantain from uh, Wyoming Catholic College. And uh, yeah. Global knows him as well. That's right. They're, they're offering anybody who's in Colorado, senior in Colorado, they're offering a scholarship to Wyoming Catholic. Uh, so check it out through their website. Um, also to Seth Demore, uh, founder and publisher and executive officer of <laughs> One Billion Stories OBS. Um, he drinks Irish whiskey, and he found out that we drink a lot of bourbon. And he's like, I don't get anything. And I was like, Well, normally you're looking for donations because you're trying to support your family. But every once in a while, a bottle of you know, Irish whiskey would be nice. So if anybody sends us Irish whiskey, we will make sure that uh, a portion of the King's table falls to uh, Seth Demore. And happy anniversary to Seth Demore because yes. One Billion Stories started when we started the podcast in January right. of 2010. So, yeah, happy anniversary to them. Go up, I know you have more, but I just want to say Father Mike and I were in Crested Butte. And we saw our, our old friend Mike Wright again. And so shout yeah, out to Mike. Yeah, Mike. And a shout out to his sister Anna, who hates the banter so much that she stopped listening to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Anna. Yeah, Anna. So great. But Anna did tell Mike about it, so we do appreciate that. And then over the uh, Christmas period, I was at St. Joan of Arc, where there are droves of Nathan Goble fans. And I met a guy named Tim. It was great to reconnect with Team Meyer, right? Carolyn Meyer and family. Oh, yes, yeah. Who I saw in uh, through the podcast, met them in Dubai five years ago. Uh, crazy. Wow. And then when I was at Cabrini, there was a number of people who came up, especially this guy Ryan, who was this uh, kid outside. Nice guy. I forget his last name. but So all of you who we saw over the Christmas season, uh, shout out. Thank you for uh, your kindness and for listening. All right. And a shout out to uh, Dick Rapp, who listens to the show, my dad, yo, yo. Uh, who I failed to mention with... Uh, with my shout out to my sister Marsha the uh, the last time, so I gotta I gotta do that, and then uh, to uh, shout out to Sue Frank and all of those at St Thomas More who are who are listening. My home parish. I went home for Christmas, and a lot of people came up and showed support and love and excitement about the about the podcast. So I appreciate all that. Everybody was saying, yeah, keep up the banter, and uh, that they love our style. So I really appreciate that. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, what? Finish it up. I'm finishing up. Okay, this is like this American life. We got uh, plenty of people to thank for all of the treats that we are currently consuming from Thy Bounty through Christ our Lord. So first and foremost, to Brock Dahl, Brock Dahl in Silver Spring, Maryland. He sent us a bottle of Rieger's Kansas City whiskey. Thank you Uh, to Joe, John, Joe, John, and Carolyn Buck in Idaho Springs. Uh, They're out of Evergreen, too. Christ the King. Yeah. They were the ones that actually paid for our Hudson bourbon whiskey. Thank you to them. And to our favorite American, Patrick Patrick J. J. Carter, Carter. (laughs) who 
who sent us his mother's fudge and cinnamon cookies, as well as a bottle of Hirsch whiskey from Ohio. Um, to the Gonzaldos in Sycamore, Illinois, who sent us a wonderful Christmas card last year and another one this year. Um, they are the ones that went through RCIA and um, their daughter will now be raised Catholic, which we are really excited for. They sent us coffee, which uh, has sustained us every morning since we have been here. So thank you so much. And the last one is to Kitty uh, Eisenbiel. Yeah, Eisenbiel. Yeah. Did you meet her? I haven't met her. No. Oh, yeah. She's out of Texas. She sent us um, She sent us chippers from uh, North Dakota. Uh, it was amazing. I'd actually had a dream about chippers. Um, and she goes, I brought you a taste of North Dakota. And I was like, did you bring chippers? And she was like, how did you know? So chocolate-covered potato chips out of Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, thank you. It was a wonderful conversation with you and your family. They sent us coffee and that uh, Jack Daniels apple cinnamon-flavored whiskey that we had last night with the cider. Thank you so much to everyone that has contributed to make our holidays, holy days, and uh, filled with delights from yes. on high. Well done. That was a lot to cover. A lot yeah, of mileage there. The last thing I would say is there's a number of people who have given financial donations oh, yeah. to the companions um which is the association we're a part of so we just want to thank you for um your generosity and your support of our priestly fraternity uh very grateful for that that's it we got to wrap this thing up immediately we will see you back in rome in a week these guys keep will be back God in denver you, keep it cosmic catholic stuff podcast at gmail.com happy seventh anniversary we'll see you next week <laughs>